Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior, and we do it with a behavioral science lens. All right, Tim, have you noticed how the term friction has become much more common in corporate meeting rooms? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely more. Yeah, I I, I think... I don't know this for sure, but I think it might have been really popularized by our friend Roger Dooley back in his 1999 book called Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage. And FYI for our listeners, it's a really good read. You should go out and get it. All right. Anyway, back to our show. Um, The term friction, at least in the way that we're talking about it here uh, in the psychological sense, dates back to the 1940s and 50s when my hero, Kurt Lewin, went to Iowa, you guys know that, developed his force field analysis of behaviors. Cool. Tell us about that. Okay, sound a little bit more excited about that, Mr. Mr. I I mean, I know he's my hero, but really, come on. I'm a fan. Just, 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 here we go. You're a super fan. I'm I'm just a fan. Lewin's idea was based on the observations that there are both driving forces and restraining forces in pretty much any situation. So driving forces cause change and resisting forces pull someone back to the current state. And eventually what, what Kurt argued is that the forces bring a person into equilibrium, this idea of a balance point. And friction was at the heart of reaching that balance point. I like how you refer to him as Kurt, like you guys, because you both went to Iowa, you have this Well, and he has a great name, Kurt, and he spells it right. (laughs) Okay. In 1948, Lewin wrote about culture, and he said the culture was, quote, like a river whose form and velocity are determined by the balance of those forces that tend to make the water flow faster. And the friction that tends to make the water flow more slowly, the cultural pattern of a people at any given time is maintained by a balance of counteracting forces. That's just poetic. That's like a a verse I'm going to put up on my wall. (laughs) All right, good reference. And more importantly... Friction as an element that shapes behavior has been around a long time, but it's making headlines today because organizations thrive on being able to get things done. And when they can't get things done, they fail. Yeah, I'm reminded of the work of W. Edwards Deming uh, that was popularized in the 1970s, uh, you know, around continuous improvement. Japanese automakers in the 1990s. You know, they took to factories and office buildings, basically in earnest to reduce friction. You know, they invested all this time and energy in organizations about process improvement with this implicit goal of reducing friction. So sort of the lighty clots of 30 years ago? Ooh, good reference. Good (laughs) reference, Kurt. And yes, subtraction is at the heart of reducing friction. So if you want to check out, here's a little ad. If you want to check out our conversation with the very brilliant and very cool Lighty Klotz, check out episode 215 from way back in 2021. Okay, but back to the show. Why are we talking about friction today? Because we have a fantastic guest who co-authored an excellent book on friction that is based on years. I'm talking years of scholarly research. 
Yeah. Huggy Rao is the Atoll McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at Stanford University. He and his co-author, Bob Sutton, who is also at Stanford, have written several great books on business issues that plague our organizations. Yeah. And we wanted to talk to Huggy about his and Bob's latest book, The Friction Project. They spent seven years studying, teaching, and asking wise people how to eliminate bad friction and, in some cases, inject good friction without driving people crazy. And it started with this. Here's what Huggy says about the impetus for this. The thing we realized was participants from these companies who would come to our executive program, they would actually talk about how hard it was to get anything done. And that is just the beginning. We had a great conversation with Huggy. We started by talking about the double-edged sword of friction and how it can be a terrible thing and a wonderful thing, depending on how you use it. We discussed the role that emotions play in organizations, and we covered the art of subtraction, of course. We also talked about leadership strategies and what you can do when you see friction in your organization um, friction that is slowing down innovation, process improvement, and just good old common sense. And we covered the leadership problem of obliviousness and what happens when leaders fail to see it or they're oblivious to it. But we couldn't have a conversation with Huggy without covering two of our favorite topics, corporate jargon and food. Okay, corporate jargon, yes, but food, maybe I'm oblivious because when did food become... One of our favorite topics. Well, I was kind of just throwing it in there because it's clearly one of Huggy's love languages. Oh, so now we're going to be looking at love languages of our guests? <laughs> oh, my okay. God. This could get really weird, Tim. So Maybe uh, in a later episode. All right. Got it. <laughs> okay. Groovers with that, we hope you sit back and relax with a steaming hot cup of friction-free solutions and enjoy our conversation with Huggy Rao. That's like, wow, but with an R. Oh, that was quick. I love There's that. no hesitation there at all. Yes. All right. So, Huggy, would you prefer dinner with your favorite chef or your favorite musician? Actually, I'd prefer dinner with my favorite musician. Oh, oh. okay. So, uh, you got to tell us why, because that kind of was not where we thought you were going to go on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, to my mind... Uh, Food is a different kind of music, if you will, <laughs> uh, because, you know, when a chef presents something, a multi-course meal, you certainly could consider that to be a symphony of sorts, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're different instruments, different elements. And for me, having a musician means it enhances the sensory experience of the meal for me. The chef, of course, gives you sight and smell and taste, uh, but there's a kind of a sound aspect, if you will, that's kind of equally important. And so I think of it as the musician is kind of elevating the meal, so to speak. I'd love to be with a chef in a kitchen, but not while having dinner necessarily. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Would you, yeah. Does any musician come to mind? Oh, my God. A musician I actually know and have served on the Carnegie Foundation's uh, board as a trustee, and he's an extraordinary musician, uh, is, I guess, Yo-Yo Ma. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. He's just in a different league altogether. Brings a wonderful sensibility, wonderful way of viewing things, 
And you you realize to be a musician like that, it takes a different kind of excellence. Right? That's for sure. So, you know, and so that that's the way uh, I would see things. But me personally, I think of music as like a doorway, just as food is a doorway. Hmm. Food opens doors, music opens doors. And me personally, I mean, I would say in a week, I probably listen to 25 to 30 genres of music. It all depends on what I'm doing. And uh, so, for example, I got up this morning at 4.30 and then I was working on a research project. When I work on a research project, I... I prefer to listen to instrumental music. And this morning I was listening to uh, flamenco music from Spain. Wow. Wow. Because it's instrumental. Uh, Other days I might listen to Nordic violin. Because when I hear a human being's voice, I get distracted immediately. I can't concentrate on my work. And then reggae, uh, you name it. The only music I find hard to relate to in America, I must confess, is country music. That's totally fine. I do like Zydeco. I like bluegrass. But country music, somehow, I've not been able to make the leap. I love, you know, Mississippi blues and all those kinds of things. But country music, per se, I find to be, for myself, a tad sappy. (laughs) Too many, too many pickup trucks breaking down with, you know, too (laughs) many different, you know, the stories kind of, you just, you can kind of get them going. I know, I know how that goes, yes. (laughs) I think that is exactly what I had in mind. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And usually lament. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Almost all of all of uh, the best songs. Yeah. And you kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to relate to that lament for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to have a bright and upbeat story every now and then, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. This should be an easy one. Should we avoid working with hollow Easter bunnies? (laughs) <laughs> I think, you know, no, not always. Oh, oh. Uh, no, not always is my example, because, you know, even if you have something that is hollow, hopefully you can use your imagination to infuse something there. Ah, okay. Well, and in, in, in the hollow Easter Bunny stories comes from some work that you and, and, and Bob did uh, yeah. with Becky Margiota. Margiota. Yeah, um, where... This idea of that you're working with these communities, building these these homes, but you get stuck with talking in committees that all they want to do is talk. All they want to do is right. kind of figure things out. Am I am I right. doing that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah, you're doing it. You're you're doing it absolutely right, Kurt. But you know the point is, it's very easy for us to think of a hollow Easter bunny as a type of purse. Yeah. All I'm sort of saying is we need to be sensitive to the fact that you, all all three of us in this conversation, we have a hollow bunny version of ourselves that's there. The smart thing is we try everything possible not to recruit that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and so uh, I, I sort of say, you know, let's not think that all these types are out there. They're within us, too. And so the the real thing to be careful about is uh, making sure they don't get activated. Ah. And instead, if you create something else, the same person could do something very different. I love the way that you talk about that, because I think there's this aspect that we can all do that. I've I've been in situations where I just want to talk about I don't want to actually get down and get my hands dirty and start doing stuff. (laughs) Let's let's figure this out a little bit more. Let's figure it out a little bit more. Exactly. And you can just go down that path and then and. If exactly. you can find some intervention to kick you out right. of that mode, 
and get you into <laughs> active mode, then I think that's that's what you're trying to say. That's right. Yeah, I love it. That's exactly right. Okay. And uh, that's exactly right. And for me, there, what's kind of the most important to make sure that we don't go that route is we've got to do everything possible to recruit our health muscle, mm. not our cell muscle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Huggy, this is the last of our speed round questions, and our speed round questions never are fast. I don't know why we call them speed round <laughs> questions, but we do, and, and it's how we work. So, yeah, they're oh, great questions. Here is, here's my last question. How is friction like cholesterol? A great question. We have, as um, our listeners would uh, you know, immediately recognize, we have good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. What does bad cholesterol do? It fills our arteries with plaque and this complicates circulation and we have cardiac arrests and the like. But we also have good cholesterol that actually cleanses, if you will, all of our arteries and the like. And in the same way, friction too is double-sided. Friction in the end is obstacles at work. And the thing we have to keep in mind is to figure out what are the obstacles that infuriate people, that shut down curiosity and generosity? At the same time, we ought to creatively think of putting in obstacles that reduce overconfidence, myopia, which is, of course, as all of us know, the doorway to stereotyping, bias, and all of the rest. So to me, that's the analogy between friction and cholesterol, or for that matter, friction and bacteria. Just as we've got oh. good and bad bacteria, you also have good and bad friction as well. Yeah. I, I love that analogy because it just it makes so much sense because we do tend to, we think about cholesterol as bad, but we know that there's a good side of it. We think about friction typically as bad, but there's, the, exactly. there's this mirror side of it that isn't. And I love, right. I love that analogy. Yeah. So we're, we are talking about your latest book with Bob Sutton, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. was there a catalyst? Was there an experience that, uh, that caused you to say, well, wait a minute, we've got to write a book about this? I think uh, there, were, there was not one sort of experience, but many experiences as I outlined. Yep. Mm -hmm. And these were the lived experiences of people at work. And the thing that blew our mind was how widespread it was. And if you ask me what sort of catalyzed me personally, perhaps it was one conversation with uh, one executive. And I remember talking to this executive who was complaining about how much, you know, how they were swimming really in a sea of shit and the like. They yep. didn't, you, you know, this was, you know, they're just being besieged by things. And the sad thing that this person said is, after dealing with all of this at work, when I go home, this person said, all I've, all I've got left for my family are scraps of myself. Oh. oh. And I thought to myself, man, that is like fundamentally wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How can you go to work yeah. and be totally depleted? And you go home and you have your partner, spouse, wife, husband, uh, you have your children, and all that you got for them are scraps. Oh, man. Surely, isn't there something wrong with this? Yeah. 
And, you know, so if there was one, if I were to, if I was to single out something, that remark kind of cut to the quick for me, yeah. you know? I mean, it was like... So, Huggy, who, who, is, who is the book for? Who, who did you write it for? Is it for leaders? Is it for the every all employees? Is it... Who did you write it for? So, I would say this is for leaders at any level, Kurt. Yeah. So, you could be the leader of a team. You could be the leader of a department, a business unit, a company, whatever the level you're in. Your job is to really be a friction fixer. Mm. And for us, being a friction fixer means the following. The first is you really think of yourself as a trustee of other people's time. Mm. And whatever you do, your goal is you don't want to piss away other people's time. <laughs> no. You know, if I can put it, uh, you know, telegraphically. Yeah. The, the, but, we, but we do, right? I mean, and we don't we, even think about it. That's kind of the point. Yeah. We, because we, you know, other people's time is invisible to us. See, when we make decisions and do things, we don't have a theory in our head of, you know, what does it mean to other people in terms of their time and what they're doing and, you know, all of that. So we're kind of blind to that. The second thing is we actually... When you think of yourself as a trustee of other people's time, you immediately think of your own organization itself as a product. As a product for employees, is it easy to use? Is it fun to use? Is it hard to use? You know, whatever. So we always have to think of our own organization as a product. And the weird thing is we think a product is something we sell to customers, Mm -hmm. but we don't think of our own company and its structure and its procedures and policies and traditions and rituals and all of that as a product. That's like another piece. And so this book really is kind of targeted to leaders to say, hey, what you can do is you can actually, you need to engage your health muscle and there really is a health pyramid. So where do you start in the health pyramid? You know, one place you start in the health pyramid is, you know, you might actually say, it's kind of like you're a person helping your subordinates to reframe what is happening. Mm. So, you know, mm. uh, if they think of it as a threat, you think of it, you help them think of it as an opportunity, like a simple kind of example. And so a lot of it is helping them rethink what is happening in the organization. The next stage is, you know, maybe you can be like a trail guy. Because it's kind of hard to navigate a company and to do all of these things as a leader, you can actually be a trail guide. And a good example of this, Bob, I think, had this experience at uh, the Department of uh, Motor Services and Vehicles and so on, the California Transportation Department. You go there for a license, huge line. And you're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be an unearthly wait and so on. But immediately there's a guy who kind of walks around, what are you here for? And you realize there are a bunch of people there for their passport. And you kind of say, well, you don't need to wait in this line for a passport. We're not the entity that gives you a passport. You need to go someplace else. Very quickly being a trail guide, making it easy for people Mm -hmm. to do things. The third thing leaders can do is they can actually shield their employees and say, I'm going to take the heat. I'm going to deal with the friction. I'm going to buffer you. I'll give you air cover, if you will. But the other two levels are equally important. Uh, and we don't think of them as much. One is neighborhood design, redesign. Let's actually see what we can do in our vicinity to make things better, to make work less of a grind. And finally, how do you design an organization to make sure 
the right things are easy to do and the wrong things are hard to do. And what we do is we do the opposite. We make the right things really hard to do and the wrong things really easy to do. It is crazy, isn't it? It is completely crazy. In some ways, it's it's just so counterintuitive that with all of the brain power in human beings that we end up tripping over ourselves constantly. Completely. Yeah. 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 In which is the reason why people in companies are confused all the time. <laughs> I mean, like, yes. you know, I, I don't know whether you guys, I mean, you work with a lot of companies and so you should know this uh, much better than me. You know, I've always been struck by the fact that the more bad friction a company has, the more likely they're going to name organizational initiatives after sleek animals, you know? <laughs> wow. I mean, isn't that kind of weird? You know, you kind of say Project Gazelle. And the employees are thinking, like, what are you talking about? The Cheetah Project. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, the Cheetah yeah. Project, yeah. Project Leopard, yeah. Panther, Puma. Yeah. It's never the Sloth Project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just sort of find that really, really weird, you know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend my next client that we we we're gonna name something the Sloth Project from just, now, just to, you know, like <laughs> that we, we we work on just just to see how their reaction is. But yeah, well, it it leads me to to, to think about you, you know you you talk about uh, rational and emotional elements of organizational friction, right. and could you spend just a minute um, defining those and then uh, and. You know, tell us what you what you mean by those, and then we can kind of go on from there. You know, when, so let me begin with the emotional element. We think emotions are things we feel, and of course, they're sentiments we feel and we experience. But emotions also are sources of information for us. When we don't know anything about any, you know, what we're going to encounter, what's the first thing we inspect? Hey, what am I feeling? Mm. Am I scared? Am I agitated? Am I confused? Am I, you know, etc. So emotions are sources of information. And the problem is, is, you know, for us in organizations, people appraise a lot of things through their emotions. And that's something we really got to kind of understand. In the end, it's like, you know, to give you an example of emotions, how many employee surveys have you guys seen where it has a simple question like the following? My boss has my back. Like, have you found an employee survey with a survey item like that? I mean, you guys are in industrial and organizational psychology. I mean, yep. have you come across a survey like that? I haven't. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I just saw it actually just recently uh, in, yeah. in a survey for a small organization, and uh, not the standard stuff. This is that's what you I know, mean. You're not going to find it in the Gallup, right? You know, or any other. So, so it's like so emotions matter, and I think. Uh, when we say rational, all that we're kind of talking about is deliberate information processing. You know, when we say we're rational, we're weighing pros and cons, we're looking at information, we're doing all of these things. And the point is, we've got to think of both of these things. So off, let me give you an example. We, Bob and I were interviewing Todd Park, the founder of Devoted Health. Now, you know, what's kind of really interesting about Todd is, when he thinks of devoted health, his company, in many ways, he kind of embodies this idea of uh, the leader as a trustee of time. He says, in the end, he says, running a company is all about making sure love meets logistics, he says. Yeah. And you're thinking, Jesus, what the hell is that about? Uh, you know, how can love meet logistics? And when you really, 
press him a little bit. He says, look, you know, when people are making medical decisions, the interesting thing he does is he wants to make it easy for patients, but he makes it a little bit harder for his employees because he's, he always asks them, what would you do if it was your mom who was the patient on the other side? Now, that's like an emotional question, as you can imagine. It's also a rational kind of question, as you can imagine. And you can imagine how that slows people down and makes you think a little bit more about what you're doing. Think of the other person as a person. When we say customer, who is the customer? A faceless kind of individual, an anonymous individual. There's no history. There's no backstory. There's like nothing. But in the end, customers are people like you and me, you know, and so... Yeah, you know, uh, we, we always talk of empathy. Empathy, of course, as you know better than I, is understanding the emotional state of the other person. But there's another thing called the theory of the mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, children have it. We all, and the theory of the mind is, can you mentalize and understand the mental state of other people? And that's kind of where a lot of leaders, it seems to me, go blind very fast. Yeah. There's no theory of the mind. No, so in this slow-moving company, you go and say, you know, Operation Cheetah. <laughs> I mean, what do people do? They snicker. And they say, I got mind, you know. And, but like, and then you think, surely this is something these guys can anticipate. And you say, why didn't they anticipate it? Yeah. It's the theory of the mind. Huggy, one of the things you said really just kind of struck with me. You, you, you said at the very beginning of that part, you were talking about that we assess things emotionally. And, and, and that struck with me because I think we do. And yet from an organizational perspective, our systems and other things are put in place to, to assess something rationally. And, and is one, help me understand from your perspective, because uh, in my mind, I see them both as being important, but does one outweigh the other or is it contextual? How, how, how do you see it? So that's a really good question. The way I see it is, for me, the rational dimension is how important is it for the employee or anybody you're thinking about? The emotional thing is what kinds of emotions are evoked? Mm. Are they negative mm. emotions and how intense are they? Mm. So when something is important to people, be they customers or employees, and generates a lot of negative emotion, you could call them disgusters. The airline loses your bags. You're late. I mean, what's your reaction? I mean, intense kind of emotion, as you can imagine. And I think that's kind of what we mean by saying you got to bring rationality as well as emotion into the thing. And which is why when we think of removing bad friction, we think of it as ridding the organization of obstacles that infuriate people and equally giving them the gift of time. That is the biggest problem. How many organizations give you the gift of time? And that's the catch. I wrote a piece for the McKinsey Quarterly, and it was a very simple piece. It was called Accountability Isn't a Word, It's an Equation. And here's the way I think it's an equation. It's a very simple equation. Accountability equals account multiplied by ability. That's how you get accountability. Now, Account, of course, is your KPI or KRA or kind of whatever. I don't know what your experience is with companies. When I sort of go to companies and I talk to people, they love the word accountability. Yeah. But when I hear them talk, it seems to me they're keying on the account part of accountability and not the ability part of accountability. <laughs> and I'm like, 
Dude, like, how are you going to get anything done? Because all that you do is you're heaping KPIs on people, which is very easy for you to do as the boss, but they don't have any ability. And how do you improve ability? To me, the way to improve ability is not shipping people off to some executive education program somewhere or whatever. The simplest way to improve ability is to actually reduce bad friction. People have more time. Then they can be more curious and generous. It doesn't mean just because they don't show curiosity and generosity doesn't mean they're denuded of them. You know, the same token, you've got to improve decision-making ability by slowing things down. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of... So all the time, you, if you want to operate on ability, this is the pathway to do it. You talked about giving people back their time, and it just yeah. made us think that you've got a great term when you, you, that, you describe, that, you just, that you've used, and it's called our meeting Geddon, if I'm getting that right. Our meeting Geddon. <laughs> I have to give a lot of credit to Drew Houston, okay. the founder and CEO of Dropbox, That was the reaction he had to the deluge of meetings that he was stuck in. He just didn't call it meetings, our meeting yet. That was what he called it. Our meeting, yeah. So, so, so he, what did he do? And, and then what happens? So, you know, he did something that certainly was sensible. He gave people norms for self governance. Hey, don't attend a meeting if it doesn't have a clear owner. You don't need to be in a meeting if you're like checking your phone and your laptop all the time and so on and so forth. So his plea was use these norms so that you can police your attendance in meetings that are unnecessary or superfluous. And that way we can reduce the number of people in the meetings and ostensibly the duration of the meeting. Now the catch is that makes, that has certainly appeal, but the difficulty is it's very hard to get people to police themselves when they're in a room called the fear of missing out. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of hard for you to, like, regulate yourself. Right. And so, you know, if, if I were kind of asked to come up with a solution to deal with the problem of meetings, my starting point would be to get people to think of, hey, what would you do if you had half the time to do this? What would you do if you had quarter the time to do this? That's like one pathway. The other pathway is you tell people, Kurt and Tim, you have two hours of meeting time this week. You choose which meetings you're going to attend in those two hours. After your two hours are done, you can't attend any other meeting. End of story. I'm going to adopt that first thing on Monday morning. I'm I'm ready for that. I'm adopting it right now. I'm like, I'm done with meetings. There you go. I mean, it's it's a simple sort of thing. One realization I have to tell you that both Bob and I had after writing this book is the most powerful person in a company is a person who can waste your time and you can't do jack about it. <laughs> oh, oh. I mean, that's like the and most we, powerful person. And we know, yeah. we all know those people. <laughs> exactly. We have all experienced those people that you, Completely. it's like they, they are always there and they're, it's like, we've talked about this before. We've done this, you know, and then they keep going on and on and or whatever it would be, right? But we've all experienced those. So, um, Huggy, we've talked a lot about removing friction, giving people back some time. When is it a good idea to add friction? When do we need to slow down? Fantastic question. So for us, the big thing is a lot depends on what's the decision you're making. And the simplest way to think about this is, are you making a one-way door decision? 
which means that it's a decision that is very costly to reverse. Examples are, you know, getting a hiring a senior person, launching a new product, diversification, entering a new market, adopting a new technology like a reorg or acquiring another company. All of those are costly to reverse decisions. There, you really need to put in a lot of good friction because if you don't put in good friction, you're going to run into all kinds of difficulties later. Conversely, where the cost of, you know, where it's easy to reverse decisions, the cost of a mistake is like pretty low and all of that, they take bad friction out. Uh, you know, and make it easy for people to give suggestions, to ask questions and to do all of these kinds of things. Those are all things you can do easily by removing a lot of bad friction, if you will. And so for us, that is really the big kind of like touchstone, so to speak, as to what to do, where to put obstacles and where to take out obstacles. Yeah. So like a one-way door that closes behind, hard to get back open, add friction. Right. If it's a revolving door, you could go in and out, in and out. Absolutely. Th then Absolutely. that's not not nearly the, the, yeah, the need I love there. your revolving door metaphor. Absolutely. <laughs> I heard you tell a story about Amazon Alexa, and I thought it was just fantastic about the there was a news. Anyway, I don't know if you if you remember that. If you could, if you do, could share do, that I to do. our listeners, I think it, well, the way you told it, it just it made me chuckle and just laugh. So, <laughs> well, it was really kind of funny because uh, I mean, at least the way I heard the story was there was this uh, young kid who simply asked Alexa to ship um, a product to their home, something she liked, and for her it was so very easy. Alexa, please do this, Bam. And it turned out uh, that this thing got the attention of a local TV station. And in their broadcast, they were describing it. And as they were describing it, of course, the Alexas kind of went off and did a bunch of ordering too. And you kind of realized <laughs> that you've got to like put in a little bit of good friction. And sometimes even for, so this is an example for customers. The other story of putting in good friction for customers that I loved was an airline at Houston. Okay. So they landed on the jetway closest to baggage claim. So which meant that in two minutes you got out of the aircraft and then it took only 15, 20 seconds for you to get to the jetway. And then what do you do? You wait for baggage. And he kind of said, this airline, you know, they're so bloody slow. They don't get the bags on time and this, that and the other. Now, if you were an airline, what could you do? Of course, you could improve baggage speed, invest technology, do all this. It's going to cost a lot of money. The outcome is like a small outcome. Instead, what did the airline do? They said, you know what? Let's actually land in the jetway farthest from baggage claim. <laughs> It'll take them five minutes to walk, walk to baggage claim. And when they take the five minutes to walk to baggage claim, the bags will arrive in 10 seconds. The time taken is the same thing. They're just not waiting. They're walking. That's it. So they yeah. created good friction, if you will. It reminds me of Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy, and he always talks about all this work on trying to increase the time uh, the train takes and the channel between England and France. And he's like going, you're spending multi-millions of dollars when in fact, you know, the couple minutes that you're going to save, if you just made that experience more fun, if you made it more exactly. enjoyable, it, you could add five minutes to that and people would be very happy about it. It's the it's that aspect of just like you said, I'm waiting there versus walking. It's a very different component. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bob and I were once teaching a group of executives about innovation. And in this wonderful experiment that we did along with the Stanford Design School and JetBlue generously helped us. So we actually took um, 
people to San Francisco airport so that they could observe JetBlue customers, passengers, and look at extreme cases and then think of interesting ideas. And uh, they met a young boy who'd lost his pet or the airline, another airline, not JetBlue, some other airline had lost the, the pet of this young boy. And, and, you know, clearly this young kid was distraught and in tears and so on and so forth. Our team of executives who kind of went there, they actually thought about it. They came back and they presented to the JetBlue president an interesting idea to create a new class of service called Pet Class. Hmm. And the president said, you know, I know what like first class means. I know what like business means. I know what economy means. Like, how would I differentiate pet class, he said. Like, he was thinking in terms of segregating people into different parts of the airline. They said, well, pet class is very different. It doesn't have to do with, you know, which part of the airline you sit in. It's just that if you pay 30 bucks extra on your TV that's already there, you can actually get the pet channel. And when you click on the pet channel, you can actually see Sparky in the hold, and you can actually observe, does Sparky have water? And what's the temperature? Because what's the most important question for anybody who has a pet? Hey, is there water? Is my pet hot or is it cold? That's Now, look at what a cool idea that is to actually take, to improve that experience. Otherwise, you're sitting in the aircraft in agony and uncertainty and all of that. So, absolutely. Uh, Lighty Klotz, is that a... Yes. Yeah, you know, he wrote that wonderful book, Subtract, about... Indeed. Uh, you know, removing things from our lives first. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm wondering, why do you think it's so hard for us to to start from this perspective of let's 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 pull away as opposed to just add add things in? There are many reasons why it's very difficult. The first is as human beings, we have an addition bias. We we add things typically. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. You ask people for suggestions on just about anything. Usually it's about adding a bunch of new things invariably. You know, it's all very little about subtraction. The second thing is the people who get rewarded in companies are people who add things. Uh, you know, people who ensure something is not even there, it's so invisible, like they don't get rewarded. Mm -hmm. When you add something, you can see what they did. When people subtract, like you don't see it, like you don't know what they did. The third thing is, we sort of think that many executives think of subtraction as taking out activity to save money or whatever, to make things efficient. They're not thinking of the person, how to help the person. So what they do is, their approach is, subtraction is like one and done. Whereas real subtraction for us is like mowing the lawn. Mm. Like how often do we mow the lawn? I would assume pretty regularly. You don't mow the lawn, what are you going to have? A whole lot of weeds. And the more weeds, the less li uh, likely that plants, flowers, fruits, etc. are going to thrive. And so in many ways, mowing the lawn in companies, uh, Bob and I think of it as an orphan problem. Mm. It doesn't fall into any department's bailiwick. Yeah. yeah. So who's going to do it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and why will it get done if no one is responsible for it? Yeah, right. I'm rewarded for it. Yeah, yeah you're not rewarded. Yeah, you're, you're you're dealing with that thing that's unseen. So um, in the book, you talk about five different kind of components in here. I just want to get in, dig into one. You talk about oblivious leaders, additional sickness, broken connections, jargon monoxide, mm -hmm. fast and frenzy mm -hmm. people and teams, right? We're not getting into all of those. But oh, Okay, okay, Kurt, you get one, but I get one too. 
Oh, okay. okay. All right. Well, I'm going to ask about this. Would, would I know if I'm an oblivious leader? Yes, you can know. Okay. In the following right. sense, you can know very quickly if you do a calendar audit. Okay. Well, okay. Help, help me understand so, that. Meaning, where are you spending most of your time? If you're spending most of your time sitting in your rear end in your office and like dealing with meetings and files and things like that, you definitely are going to become oblivious. <laughs> you definitely are going to become oblivious. And so you can easily know looking at your calendar that you may actually be clueless. And I think what great leaders do is they deliberately put themselves in positions of low power. Yes. When you go visit a store, when you see kind of what happens. I mean, a great example of this is Office Depot. Uh-huh. Uh, so imagine, you know, the CEO of Office Depot, uh, you know, they sell, you know, phones and computers and all to small business people, as all of our listeners know. The CEO of Office Depot gets two signals. One is you got mystery shoppers who go incognito, uh, under disguise, and then they kind of rate uh, the lights. Uh, is it well lit? Uh, do, do people wear uniforms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the mystery shopper scores, Office Depot was acing them. But the CEO also gets another report, same store sales. How much did you sell in the store the month before and now quarter before in this quarter? And if you see that the sales are plummeting, what would you do if you were a CEO? This CEO said, you know what? I got to get off my chair. And he said, I'm going to go to a store and figure out what's going to happen. So he goes to the store, parks his car, store opens at nine, and he sees like a bunch of people going in. He says, thank God there's traffic in the store. That's not the problem. And then after five minutes, he sees the same people coming out with no shopping bags. He says, that is truly bizarre. They just kind of went in and then they're coming back empty-handed. Let me go in and figure out. And the moment he goes in, he instantly recognizes the problem. Right at the time when customers come in, the employees are busy stocking product in the shelves. So are they showing their face to the customer or their backside? Not a good idea to show your backside to a customer ever. <laughs> At least right, I don't think. Right, right, ever. Not typically. No, not typically. Yes. But the question is, why were they doing that? And it all had to do with the warehouse. Because they said, hey, for us, the best thing is to ship product at 7.30. You'll get it at 8.30. You shelve it. Did anybody think of it from the customer's point of view? And that's kind of what I mean by obliviousness. Here, the warehousing department clearly was oblivious. So leaders can certainly be oblivious, but the obliviousness can extend throughout the organization. Where I think leaders are particularly vulnerable is if you really don't know how work gets done three to four levels beneath you, the danger is you underestimate coordination difficulty. You think it's pretty easy to do. And so now clearly that's an illusion on your part that it's easy to do, but you're the boss. And because you're the boss, nobody can check you or Mm. finds it comfortable to check you. So illusion then hardens into impatience. And the moment illusion becomes impatience, what do smart people, what do the doers do? They go underground because they know this is a fast train ride to nowhere. And so why do I need to get on this train? Do they go underground? Who's available? Incompetent people are available. So when you multiply these three things, It's not just being oblivious, but it's obliviousness leading to impatience and then making sure the only supply of talent you have is the incompetent end of the spectrum. And the net result is 
what uh, Bob and I have called in our previous book, Scaling Up Excellence, a cluster fug. <laughs> so we got to give due credit to Norman Mailer there. We couldn't use the four-letter word. Yes. Oh, totally. Totally. Oh, totally. Yep. Yes. There you so go. When you say obliviousness, that's kind of what I um, what I sort of think about. And the other thing is, this is an even bigger problem for powerful people. Because work by my Stanford colleague, uh, Deb Grunfeld and Dr. Keltner of Berkeley, what that work has shown is the more powerful you are, the less you search. Mm. Because you don't have uncertainty. Does does that relate to cone of friction with Perry Cleveland that you... Yes. Yeah. It, it's also part of the cone of friction because you really don't understand what is kind of happening. And, yeah. so, and your your actions get magnified and, and um, kind of example you know, expand beyond what you ever thought, you know. Completely. 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 All right. Tim okay. has his own question. He gets to yeah, ask yeah, please questions too. Uh, Huggy, I recently uh, joined a bank as uh, the head of uh, applied behavioral science. And wonderful, congratulations! Thank you. It's a it's a wonderful organization, and uh, I just have deep affection for so many aspects of the organization. But one thing that really struck me was because of all the regulation. I've not I've not worked in banking before or any regulated industry. Is the regulators? It's the it's um, it's legal and compliance, and then the acronyms that go along with them. And so, <laughs> yeah, so so the fourth of your five uh, components is jargon monoxide. Yes, <laughs> and you've got to share with our listeners a little bit about jargon monoxide. So when we think of jargon monoxide, this was actually. I think it might even have been a participant in uh, a company who actually kind of uh, said that, you know, jargon was kind of suffocating them. And, you know, then this, uh, you know, metaphor of jargon monoxide, uh, you know, quickly appeared to us. When you really think of jargon monoxide, the first thing is the use of like complicated language that confuses and makes things opaque. So that is like one thing. And in our book, we talk about different kinds of bullshit, if you will, you know, convoluted crap. And we have like a amusing yeah. typology. Yes. Uh, but the, the thing we don't realize is, uh, and we talk about it in our book, there's this wonderful law called Bandolini's Law. It takes approximately 2x the effort to deal with correct bullshit in the organization. If an organization has X amount of bullshit, it takes 2x the resources to deal with it. <laughs> And that is truly the sad part. Let me give you an example. You know, think of the way in which organizations communicate their vision. You know, what do you think? You know, what do you think is better? Telling people superior customer service or telling them, hey, whatever you do, make sure there's a smile on the customer's face. What do you think is way more accessible, way more simpler? Yeah, the latter. And I think in organizations, we use all of these abstract terms. What's better Is it better to state integrity as a value or no bullshit as a value? Like, what do you think? We're lacking in the no bullshit factor. We're we're deeply, we're deeply lacking. We've, we've given way to uh, putting so much icing on the cake that we forget what the cake tastes like. Absolutely. You know, Uh, absolutely. I think uh, the thing is there, there are a number of things we can do to reduce 
jargon monoxide. The first thing is get people to talk in the present tense. Ask them to be concrete. Ask them to be simple. And for me, the, uh, the test I like to kind of use is, can a 10-year-old kid understand this mm-hmm. immediately? And if a 10-year-old kid can't get it, you're in trouble. Uh, there's no way this is going to scale. So when I sort of, I wrote a case study on Atlassian, the Australian uh, software company, Jiro, and a bunch of things they sell. And what's kind of interesting is, you know, what do salespeople do? They like to cross-sell to customers. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I got to collect my bonus. If you guys are my customers, I'm going to leave you with product you might not need because I got to connect my bonus. So I asked this co-CEO, you know, Chris, I said, hey, how do you guys deal with it? And he said, we have our own way. We're Australian. I said, like, really? Like, what is that? And my apologies if I'm using a four-letter word. You can edit it out later. He said, well, the one thing we tell all of our employees when they join us is we tell them one thing, and that is don't fuck the customer. I looked at him and I said, what? He said, we just tell them don't fuck the customer. I said, my God, what kind of like bad language is that? And why do you need to use that? I asked him. He smiles and he says, Huggy, it means the same thing in Sydney, San Francisco, Shanghai. Ah, <laughs> there you go. I need to ex- do I need five slides to explain to you what that means? I tell you, don't F the customer. People get it. Yes. Yeah. But can you imagine, like, you tell people, you know, let's be customer-centric, and people are thinking, Jesus, what the hell is that? Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. I mean, you're talking in these abstract forms that everybody interprets their own, or or they it doesn't that's mean right. anything. I mean, the jargon that's that you, right. it's just, it's like pretty words that sound nice, but when you try to, like, pull back the layers, you're going, there's nothing here. It's like a cloud that Completely. just dissipates. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, keeping things... Uh, simple and kind of like uh, straightforward and you don't need to use like you know foul language necessarily to get this done it's just do things the way a 10 year old would sort of think and once you sort of use that frame you can actually get a lot more going let me give you a lovely example of uh, so i teach in our stanford executive program i teach a class on scaling and all the things that are involved and this was like a lovely story of a Swedish rear admiral. He was going to be the CEO of a submarine company called Kokem. And, you know, he said, I'm going to take over the company. Can you help me think of how I should manage my entry? And, you know, he's a very smart guy. I gave him a couple of ideas, but he was a very smart guy. He knew a lot about, knew a lot about the company and what he did. And it's amazing, you know. So he's going to be appointed as the CEO. The group chairman asks him, hey, where would you like to be introduced as the CEO? At corporate headquarters in Stockholm? Or do you want to be introduced to your people in the submarine yard at Karlskrona, which is near Malmo in Sweden, if I recall rightly? So he says Karlskrona. So there's like a podium and you got the group chairman, the outgoing CEO of Kokem, which was making losses for a I think some 15 years or something. They were like in the red. And then a seat for the incoming CEO, and that seat was vacant. And already the workers noticed this vacant seat and said, hey, what happened to the CEO, you know? He's not showing up even for the meeting where he's supposed to be introduced. He's he's so scared of our problems. And, you know, so... (laughs) 
So they announced the new CEO's name, and the workers are kind of like a little astonished to find there's a guy wearing a hard hat who's sitting amongst them who gets up, and they say, oh my God, the guy's with us all the time, and then he walks over to the podium. I mean, just in that message, look at how much he was communicating. He didn't need to say anything. And then, you know, you got to give this guy a lot of credit. He put one slide, Tim Metcart, one slide. And the slide was a picture of a submarine. And in that picture, there was a young, dashing Swedish naval captain leaning against the conning tower of the sub. So he puts the picture. He asks the workers, you recognize the sub? Yeah, of course we recognize the sub. We made it. 15 years ago, it was a damn good sub. And on and on and on they go. And then he says, anybody recognize this dashing naval captain who's leaning against the conning tower? No idea what that block is. (laughs) And then he says, that was me when I was a captain in the Swedish Navy. I commanded the sub that you made, and it was a damn good sub. I knew my men were safe. We could perform any mission entrusted to us. And then he looks at the people and he says, can you help me build another boat like this? And sits Mm. down. What do you think was the effect on the workers? Intense. (laughs) Absolutely intense emotional outpouring. Completely. And then what do you think is going to happen when these workers go back? to their homes, and their partner asked them, hey, what did the new guy say and do? <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation at the dinner table? The fact that there will be conversation at the dinner table as opposed to just expletives flying out of the mouth of the employee. Completely. Completely. Yeah. You know, if this guy had come and said, you know, we're going to innovate and yada, 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 yada. You know, you can imagine all these workers, eyes glazed over and say, God, you know, more bullshit again. This doesn't really look good. And you go home, their spouses and partners ask them, what did the new guy say? And you say, he emphasized innovation. And your partner is immediately going to tell you, pass me the lasagna then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You know, in the end, both of you and I, we're nothing but like a bundle of stories. We take our stories away like, we're stripped of our in uniqueness, our individuality, and so. And the other thing about stories, too, is when somebody is narrating a story to you or you're narrating a story to somebody, there's actually research that shows that the same parts of the brain light up. Mm. So there's a shared brain, too. Yeah, of course. Of course. You are you're 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 speaking. I don't know. You you've, you've just made our day. We not only did we get to laugh more than ten times in this episode, but man, you just you expanded our brains. And uh, thank honey, you, Kurt. Thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. Kurt and Tim for inviting me. It was fun, and you're right. We laughed. You know, but I love your uh, speed quiz, and it was a lovely way of putting in good friction. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that, you I know, love it's, that. It's interesting. The speed rounds actually add friction into this, and the, that's they kind do. of a moron when you think about that speed. speed yeah, round. completely. Yeah, yeah, completely. Huggy, <laughs> thank completely. you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, guys. And the next time you're in California, let me know. We'll have a nice glass of wine.
Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Huggy, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our friction-filled brains. Isn't that the truth? Oh my God. I, okay, too much information here. TMI, as they say, right? My brain is getting filled with more and more friction. I cannot think the same way I used to be able to think. I don't know. I'm slowing down, Tim. Too much. I got to get rid of all that plaque or whatever else is building up in my brain. Maybe it's maybe it's streamlining. Maybe you're cutting away the chaff and focusing more on the wheat. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> that sounds like some biblical passage. Cutting away the chaff and focusing on it. No, but I'm in, in all seriousness, there's probably some truth there, right? I think there's a lot of things going on. We got lots of, you have lots of projects. I have lots of projects. There's family, work, life, and there's just a lot of yeah. stuff that is in my brain that kind of impedes it from going smoothly. Or maybe I need to be more like uh, Kevin Dorst and just get into some really good habits and routines and setting quiet, uh, you know, points apart and times to just uh, relax and think. But you're, you're referencing our MIT philosopher professor, philosophy yeah. professor, yeah. buddy. Yeah. Okay. All more right. on that later. More, more on that later. And and w- so, so let's, let's forget about what's the friction in my brain. Let's, let's talk about this conversation with Huggy. What did you take, Mr. Houlihan? What did you take out of this? Well, I want to start with burnout and friction as a relatively contemporary concept, this idea that, you know, and I think a lot of people today just think about friction as being sort of brand new. But as as we talked about in the introduction, Kurt Lewin was talking about it in the way that we are thinking about it today uh, since the 1940s and 50s. And so, and because what strikes me, and Kurt, you're more of a Lewin scholar than I am, but friction is systemic, right? That it's a it's a big deal, and that Lewin was kind of right on when he said, you know, you've you've got to look at cultures and organizations in in their entirety, and look at the frictions that that are happening, the re, all the restraining forces, as he might have said, mm-hmm. as a way of impeding progress. Yeah, and I think the piece that you talked about there, this impeding progress, this idea that when Kurt Lewin was talking about it from a cultural perspective, is saying that kind of like what Huggy is saying is that you kind of sometimes need friction as well. Yeah, you need yeah. to have that restraining force in order to make sure that you're just not going so fast down the road that when the turn or the stop comes, you can't do that. You can't see what's coming up. And so I think that's a really important piece. I do think that, you know, Obviously, friction from a physical perspective has been around for ages, but this idea of friction as it relates to organizations and as it relates to kind of the psychological aspect of how we operate as humans, I do think Kurt Lewin was really one of the the, the people that, you know, kind of brought this to the forefront, not saying that he was the only one on um, different pieces of that, but I think it was really important. And uh, I encourage people, encourage you, go out there and look at... Uh, at some of Kurt's work because it's a really, it's a simple but powerful model of looking at organizational um, progress, but also how friction plays into that. And what he didn't anticipate was how 
so many people get into this space where as an employee, uh, I get fed up with the friction, uh, with, which ends up being uh, manifested in sort of the, well, that, you know, when you get the explanation of, well, that's the way we've always done it. Mm. And, and to me, that always just sounds like friction. Okay. You know, when, when someone says, well, that's just the way that we've always done it. It's like, okay, that's not a really good explanation for actually having a good thing going and that there's friction there. And that leads people to leave organizations. Well, and ex Expand. Why, why does that lead people to leave organizations the well the, the term that's the way we've always done things isn't so much the reason but it's it speaks to the the underlying friction that we're not willing to address mm. that when the organization sees a problem uh or is aware of a problem so much that people grimace about it but there's no action taken that leads people to leave or leads just to burnout. A hundred percent in alignment there. And I think there's a big piece of that is it's okay to run into friction to a certain degree, right? And, and even bad friction. It is when that friction is then brought to the attention of the organization and nothing is done. And I run into that same friction over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That leads to frustration, leads to stress, leads to burnout, all of these these facets that we talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I think Huggy said that we psychologize our way through it as if it's <laughs> right. And, and I, I kind of love that. But he reinforced the idea that it's not individuals, it's not the employees, it's the organizations. Yeah. Well, and we appraise things through our emotions. So... Uh, being in a company that has a lot of negative friction that is causing me stress and negative e emotives, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna appraise that organization in a yeah. more negative fashion because of that. And 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 really, the the opportunity then becomes, well, how how can we turn that around? It, you know, and uh, I mean, I th we'll get to that in just a minute. But if we're if the, if we have a visceral reaction to it then I think that there's ultimately an opportunity to turn that around and make something positive about it as well. Mm, so you're going to we'll, turn it around. You're going to reframe. <laughs> you're going to make a difference in how this works, uh, right? I want to, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going because one of the, the one of the ways, and we'll get to this later, is this idea of reframing friction troubles yeah. that you can't fix, yeah. right? So, all right. I, I want to talk you know, about this really highly polarizing uh, element of jargon monoxide. Oh, wasn't that, that was so great. <laughs> it was such a great thing in the book. And I'm, I'm so glad that Huggy was happy to talk about it too. Yeah. I don't um, even know if I, I called it polarizing. And I think that was probably a misstatement. I don't think it's polarizing. I think most people agree. Agree. There isn't a, a a group of people in a corporate situation like going, "Ooh, give me more jargon. I would want more jargon." <laughs> there might be a few, but for the most part, no. Yeah. Okay. So on on jargon monoxide, I think when Huggy said jargon suffocates people, <laughs> whew, wow, right? And it, and it gets back to, uh, I mean, he talked about uh, Bandolini's law. But uh, this idea that it takes two times the resources to remedy the bullshit. But but isn't so much of uh, we've had so many great guests talk about how abstract and complicated and opaque language get in our way and that concrete and transparent language 
is more efficient and more effective, jargon just doesn't really it doesn't help us. No, and it's really interesting because the other aspect of jargon, and I don't think we talked about this, is it becomes becomes invisible. So I've mm. worked with lots of organizations where I get brought in oftentimes to work on their total rewards, their incentives, various different pieces. And I start looking at the communications that the organization is sending out around this. And in those communications, in the way that they're describing their incentives, in the way that they're describing the sales process, whatever it would be, it is filled, it is laced with acronyms, with jargon, with specific industry terms and levels. And sometimes that's really important because it is very specific. It, it helps people who understand that be able to process that information very quickly. However, and I always talk to uh, my clients about this is if I am a new sales rep, say a new employee in your division and you sent this to me, what won't I understand? What is this based upon the jargon that you're using because it is a cultural norm and it's just understood by the, the team. And and as I said, sometimes that's important because it can really be beneficial, a short term, kind of a shortcut to understand what we're actually trying to get them to do. But most times it's just a lazy way instead of talking out exactly what they're trying to say. And that's what you have to take away in this jargon because, and particularly when the jargon doesn't mean anything, right? The Let's get aligned. Let's pull up. Let's activate this concept. Let's <laughs> let's go broadboard this and make you know. Let's the, uh, the corporate jargon is, of the day. Is this blue ocean or not? Yeah, yeah. It's a green ocean. It's a, it's a it's green a, ocean. It's a, it's a purple, it's a purple, you know, one-eyed people eater, whatever. I, yeah. I'm all for analogies. I am all for analogies. I think that they're, they can be really helpful. But when it becomes jargon, I think we really lose our way. And I think you point to a, a point that was really uh, important to me, and that is this idea of the bosses can be oblivious. <laughs> there, yes. I uh, I was going to make a snarky comment that not can be, but are okay. oblivious, <laughs> but I won't say that. I will just uh, keep that in my brain. Okay. <laughs> well, my, my issue is that managers and leaders, they may not have bigger blind spots than everybody else, but their blind spots have bigger consequences, right? Because they're managing other people. And over the years, I, I, I've noticed that this the kind of issues that you're pointing to where managers are oblivious, the impact is that, or the way that they do it is that they aren't concise in the way that they speak, right? Todd Rogers would chew them up. Oh God. Just, just chew them up alive. Um, and, and that they think their coworkers always know what they mean. So there's this assumption of familiarity, which is, you know, works against them. And then they also Managers just fail to consider the comprehension level of the workers mm-hmm. th- that they're communicating with because they're not all on the same page. It's, the larger the organization, the more distance there's going to be in education and background and experience. 
I, I think that those are terrible misses that uh, that leaders fail to take into consideration. T- Todd Rogers, by the way, episode 382 talks about communication, different things. One of the pieces on that, Tim, is this is what I see a lot. Managers, leaders, uh, people inside the organization talking to their field, whatever, have spent a lot of time thinking, talking, discussing, having meetings about a certain topic. A certain, with each other. With each typically. other. Yeah. And they are, they are really have studied this, looked at this. And then they need to communicate it to the broader audience who don't have that time invested in understanding. And they do a piss poor job because they assume it's the, the the curse of knowledge. They assume that people have the same background that we we do, that of course they've spent five hours in meetings talking about, you know, the new corporate, you know, whatever policy it is. And that I, I think is really uh, a, a big miss. The other piece, and we talked about this a little bit prior to the show, is managers hear back from people that are upset or loud, that have strong opinions, they don't hear as much or even at all from people who are the silent majority. And that can be uh-huh. a, on either end of the spectrum. I love, I love this new program. I hate this new program, right? But you probably have a big majority somewhere in between or even on one end, but they're just not talking about it. Uh, And and that can be a big blind spot, this obliviousness that we talked about, that Huggy talked about. And junior people in the room tend... Uh, not to want to disagree, right? They 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 might be afraid to disagree. I agree or they with just you. Don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm agreeing. Uh, and they may they may just not really want to disagree because they want to try to figure out how to agree with the boss. Oh yeah, that I think that's right. Yeah, <laughs> you, you are so on topic. It, it's so it's amazing how 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 good you are at that. That's great, Tim. Thank you, man. I'm just feeling the power, dude. You are. You, you should because you're you're awesome. <laughs> all right. What should we do about all this? Ooh, I, we should just fix it. We should get rid of all friction in the world. Right? Is that the answer? No, of oh, course it's not. Right? It's not because no, sometimes you want to add in appropriate friction, as the Alexa story was uh, talked about there, uh, yeah. that Huggy talked about. But I do think uh, near the end, Huggy talked about what he called the help pyramid. Do you remember that? Yeah. 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 This idea yeah. again, as we talked about earlier, a little bit this reframing friction troubles that can't be fixed right now. So that that friction doesn't feel as threatening um, to the repair of the organization. In other words, let's look at this as an opportunity as opposed to an issue. Yeah, I, I love that. And he he talked about uh, one way to do that would be to uh, be a trail guide. And that's a that's a great image to me to help show people the path to less friction. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's really appealing to me right now because I've spent the last year and a half at a new organization with fifty five thousand employees, and there's 
there's a lot of difficult paths to navigate. And when trail guides come along, when those people come along and say, well, I'll answer that question for you. Are, have you have you figured out how to how to get through this? Those trail guides are immensely uh, helpful so in, in creating a career. Let me let me ask you: Are you actively searching out those trail guides? Are you asking people to be a trail guide for you, or do they show up in times of need when you are sitting there at the crossways of your halls and looking lost and like going, where's the bathroom? I don't know where the bathroom is. No, I was, I was sitting cross-legged in a Zen, you know, uh, meditation. And I was thinking about a guitar. Someone shipped me a violin, but when I opened the box, it was a guitar. Okay. Okay, That's a really random thing. Inside baseball, Tim. Nobody's going to get your, your, uh, your Deepak Chopra kind of <laughs> reference, there. reference there. Yeah. Both. The answer is both, Kurt. That okay. there are a couple people that I believed would be influential and helpful. And when I raised when I raised my hand and said, "Would you help me navigate this?" The, they were wholeheartedly endorsing my and supporting of me. Uh, but other people just simply came up and after a meeting and said. You know, we were talking about this one thing, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Can I help you with that, uh, that particular topic? And so I, I'm grateful for both the the hand raisers and the people who simply responded. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that sometimes you need to be proactive and you need to search for trail guides, particularly if you're feeling, as we talked about before, that frustration with things because. Yeah. There might be, not that this is the right thing and that the organization probably should change those friction pieces that are causing that stress or whatever it would be, but there might be workarounds that other people have developed or ways to, that that shouldn't be a friction and it is a friction because something is not being done properly or some other aspect of it. The other piece that, that Huggy talked about is this idea of neighborhood redesign, this idea of you... The situation context matters. This idea of the environment where you work, right? That what you have control over. You might not be able to change the corporate jargon, but you can work within your team to reduce the jargon that is being, you know, propagated by your team, by yourself. So this idea of what do you have control over? What is that neighborhood piece? that you can redesign in order to improve, reduce the appropriate friction and add in appropriate friction. I, I am reminded of a project that you and I did with a Swiss pharmaceutical, and we were doing a multi-day workshop to help a team sort of plot out their strategy mm-hmm. for uh, to, to do a lot of uh, friction reduction in uh, in their work. And I remember one of those things was we can't change everything, but we can change the way we work. Yeah. And, and I loved how they were very willing to embrace each of them individually. Like, okay, I can't change the world, but I can change me and I can change how I interact with the people that I interact with. And I, I love seeing that kind of empowerment. And there's something about that type of empowerment that, There is, if you get a certain uh, percentage of people doing that, it becomes self-fulfilling. It is almost this, it's like, 
it's it's contagious and you yeah. all of a sudden I'm doing that, therefore you will start doing that, therefore the people that you interact will start doing that. That is the power that an individual can have by starting that. We always talk about how emotions are contagious within organizations. Well, on the positive side, this element of re reducing that bad friction that you can do is can be contagious as well. So... Yeah, I think the number one, if, if you are in a position of leadership within your organization, then I think the ultimate in the help pyramid is to be at the top of the organization or however you define that organization and to really rethink the organization, actually rethink the way friction is, uh, is manifesting itself in the company. I think that that would really be the ultimate uh, reward beyond just your neighborhood. If you've got a big group of people reporting to you, rethink the organization from a friction perspective. Yeah. And I like this idea of make the right things easy and make the wrong things hard. It, it's yeah. as simple yeah, and as profound as that. The more that we can make those right things for people to do, easy, reduce that friction in those cases and make the wrong things more difficult. In other words, add friction in to the pieces where there is problems. Christian Hunt is probably somebody who would talk a lot about this. We could, we could have a really in-depth conversation, but I yeah. think that is really just really powerful. So. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I, I think that we should get him back on to, to have that conversation with him. Oh, yep. there we go. Christian, yep. if you're listening, which I know you are because you listen to every single one of our episodes, <laughs> you know, just give us a call. There we go. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, Kurt, um, I just want to do a shout out. Uh, nice talk corporate jargon there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. God, Devin forbid. Um, okay. I'd like to uh, recognize uh, uh, someone who has helped us along our journey here at Behavioral Grooves. That, and and that's, that's Mary Califf. Um, you know, Mary joined Behavioral Grooves team in March of 21, and she first contributed on episode 211. That's that's 170 episodes ago. AJ Jacobs. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, she she took notes during interviews. She wrote up episode notes for Apple and the pod sharing apps, as well as our website. She managed a bunch of duties with production, planned episode promotions. She read every book and paper that we read and just contributed really thoughtfully and wisely to our discussions about guests and grooving and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she, she was very instrumental in the, in what we were able to accomplish in the past 170 episodes. I mean, not just from just the, the work that ended up, you know, that she had to do, but just in the way that we thought about things. And, and I loved Mary's in-depth, um, kind of perception on the books. And as we've talked about this, like the questions, it, it it's interesting. Listeners, I wish you would be able to know, like many of the questions that we asked our guests weren't from Tim and me. They were from Mary uh, yeah. because they were just, it's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. That is fantastic. So, I mean, she has done so much for Behavioral Grooves and it's just a really 
really big thank you for her, the impact on the brand, on the podcast, on on many of our guests and, yeah. and on us. And it'll be felt for a, a long, long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary's not dead. Mary just, <laughs> she just recently left behavioral groups to further her career. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Mary for all that she did. We remain good friends and we stay in touch and we're just, we're just grateful. We're just grateful for Mary Califf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with that, let's wrap up this episode, Tim. Okay. So we hope that Huggy's comments and tips about using the help pyramid to reduce friction in your organization will help you this week as you go out and find your groove. <laughs> <laughs>